Hey, it's Lauren. Thank you so much for listening to The Afterlight. Enjoy the episode. This episode has been brought to you by the Afterlight Institute. Ignite the light, magic, and miracles within. If you're a spiritual professional and have been building your skills and knowledge for years and feel ready to share this wisdom with the world, then the Afterlight Institute wants to work with you. If you want to create your very own online course without having to worry and stress about the technology and the marketing, then you are strongly urged to apply. All the details can be found at theafterlightinstitute.com. Lauren Grace here and welcome to the show. My guest today is Lauren Robertson. She is a lifelong psychic medium having conducted over 15,000 plus sittings and public demonstrations. She's the author of The Medium in Manolos published by Hay House, which by the way, for our listener at home is a must read. You can even pause this right now, go and buy it. It is such a great book. We're going to talk about it in the show today. Lauren graduated with honors from University of Glasgow, where she studied English literature and philosophy, specializing in consciousness studies. So she wrote, writes about mediumship and consciousness on the art and science of mediumship. And I'm going to put a link to that blog in the show notes. You can find Lauren at Lauren Sarah Robertson on Facebook and on Instagram. She's joining me today to talk about all things mediumship. Why do we want to do mediumship? How is it helping the world? Because let me tell you right now, it is. I'm going to find out whether or not she was born with this gift, how it's developed, and uh, what else she's up to. Lauren, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. Cool name. Cool name, yes. Best name ever. Thumbs up. So uh, I read off the top here, 15,000 sittings and public demonstrations. Girl, is that a typo? No, that is not a typo. I was very fortunate that I got into spirituality, readings, mediumship very young. And I got kicked out of school when I was 16 and immediately found a job as a, as a medium doing sittings and doing public demonstrations. So it was my full-time occupation for 10 years wow. uh, plus really, um, more like 13 years on top of which I was doing spiritualist churches and various other places where I did public demonstrations of my mediumship. In fact, 15,000 is probably a conservative estimate if you taught up a full-time job doing those settings for over 13 years. Yeah, that's amazing. I actually got out my calculator before we talked and I was trying to think about on average how many readings that would have been over a 50. It's funny you say 13. I went, okay, 15 year period, 365 days, it's an average of 2.7 readings a day. So if she was doing more, <laughs> so I actually did the math. So that is just absolutely amazing. Yeah. So did you realize from a very young age that you had this special skill or was it something that you kind of needed to sort of grow into and, and become aware of? I think it's a little bit of both. I have always been really sensitive I'm sensitive in, in all areas of my life. I'm very emotionally sensitive. I'm sensitive to disturbances in the force. You know, if anyone's upset or anything, I'm sensitive to quite a lot of foods. Like I'm just a very sensitive person. And so my awareness of people and what people were really thinking and if people's actions were aligning with their words and if, you know, their inner life was matching their outer life, all of that started very young for me. Uh, but my mother is also a medium and there's a sort of lineage of it in my family. I, I come from Highlanders way up in the north of Scotland and there's a lot of soothsayers and seers and very spooky traditions. Um, my uncle did my genealogy and discovered that my great, 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 great grandfather uh, claimed to see a mermaid. He was a, he was a shepherd on the very, very top edge of Scotland and his flock was right next to the coast. Until the day he died, he said that he saw a mermaid in the water uh, off of the north shore of, of Scotland. So, so there's some spooky, uh, spooky goings on in my lineage there, definitely. Uh, but definitely for me, it, it was also a training, uh, a training situation. I developed my mediumship specifically because First of all, I started with doing angel readings 
And I just loved people. I loved these cards being an access window into how people were thinking and helping them see their life in a different way and being able to talk about true things to them. I just found that really rewarding and really valuable. Mm -hmm. And then, as I mentioned, I got a job doing readings and demonstrations and then just gradually more and more and more this topic of life after death and and people wanting to communicate from spirit just started to sort of happen more and more spontaneously and the and the readings that I was doing and then my boss at the time one of the other women that I worked with had left the company and my boss at the time said would you like to try doing a demonstration of mediumship because usually in the shows that we did I talked about angels um, I was like, sure, I'll give it a go because so many people were starting to come through in my private readings. And I just found it to be one of the most rewarding types of intuitive conversations that I was able to have with people. Mm-hmm. And so the momentum just took over and my journey took that path. Fabulous. I do want to talk to you in a few minutes about what it was like the first time you did a public demonstration and whether or not you prepare different, differently, because I would imagine that would be a very daunting task. Um, but before we get to that, I guess I'm kind of wondering, you know, it seems to me that when I'm speaking with, with people, um, mediums and psychics and things, they all have sort of different journeys. They all have highs and lows. And very often they have something that sort of catapults them into exploring their spiritual journey. It sounds to me like you were sort of set up for success from a young age. So, you know, having a mom that's a medium coming from a family that's used to having this sort of subject matter discussed, I would imagine, especially when you're talking about your uncle with the, with the mermaid, which is just so fantastic. So was this something that you had to get comfortable with speaking about with other people, or was it just sort of like a natural conversation, you being, being a medium? The younger I was, the less awareness I had that anybody would have a problem with it unfortunately the older I've gotten bit by bit that has been taken away and my uh, social media has a lot to do with it as well and my my view on the boundaries that we ought to have in protecting our mediumship uh, has changed you know when I was young I was completely oblivious to what other people thought I, I was moving through the world with naivety and innocence and kindness in my heart mm-hmm. and curiosity about the world and about others and about this ability that I had and I thought that the world was reflecting that back to me and so you know I would go up to people in pubs and give them readings and I would you know talk to taxi drivers about it who were Muslim and I would you know tell family members about it and didn't think that they would think anything of it but as I say as I've gotten a bit older um you know that that was the innocence of of youth that permitted me to do that Mm. I do behave quite differently with my mediumship now in terms of communicating about it with others Mm. I do want to talk to you sort of near the end of our conversation a bit about ethics and the responsibility of mediumship so I would love to hear your opinion on that Mm. but before we get to that I mean so let's say I take you to a party and we're hanging out because we're friends and someone says to you, so what do you do for a living? Do you kind of share that with the world or do you explore it in a different sort of way? And I also just want to say that it's sort of sad, isn't it? That, you know, you're talking about how you were looking at the world with such, I guess we could say rose colored glasses, just for lack of a better example, but you were looking at all the beauty and all of the opportunity and to kind of have that part sort of shut down. That's, there's a lot of, is there pain associated with that as well? You know, I don't think so much that there's pain associated with it. I just became accepting of the fact that there are different kinds of people in the world. And I made a conscious choice as to who and what I allow to reflect judgment or their opinion back to me about the subject matter that is so dear to me and such a central part of who I am as a person. For people who are not sensitive like us, it is impossible to wrap their head around the magnificent enormous detailed spectrum of information that we are able to receive into our minds by means that we don't quite understand and so when somebody just you know is the sort of person who gets up in the morning and goes to the same job every day and doesn't ever really look up from their employment you know has a couple of kids and does whatever and 
it never really stops to think about what happens when you die or that there's other ways of living life out there. You know, people who are very conservative in their way of being, it's it's like talking another language to them. Yeah. And so the judgment that comes back isn't even really judgment about you as a person. It's just a complete mismatch in their ability to understand it. I just learned that the spectrum of the way humans are in the world is much more massive than we thought it was. People are not having a cogent experience as we move through this life. You know, people are not seeing the world in the same way. You need to only look at the arguments that happen on Facebook like many millions of times a day to realize that everybody's got a slightly different angle on it all. So there isn't pain associated with it. It's quite the opposite. I saw it as sort of taking back my power because I am so sensitive, I do take things quite personally. And when I occasionally had things reflected back to me where I felt, oh, what I just said about how I see the world didn't land right with this person. And now I don't like how I feel about myself or how they looked at me or, you know, feeling ashamed or feeling whatever. Um, And I knew that that was possible because people see the world differently. So I just decided where possible to opt out of that sort of dynamic as a way to take my power back. So in answer to your question, Lauren, if you took me to a party, I would read the room very carefully. And if it was a party where you're like, you know, we all talk to the dead here. This is a spooky party. You know, everybody's a medium or everybody's whatever. I'd be like, hi guys, medium in the house. (laughs) You know, but if you were like... (laughs) This is mixed company. Here's my friend Dave. He's an atheist. Here's my yeah. friend Christine. She's a Christian. Here's whoever, whoever. I would definitely, you know, I would definitely pull my punches a little bit and disclose in a more understandable way mm-hmm. what I'm interested in. Because I did study consciousness, that's usually my go-to. If I don't know the company that I'm in, I'll say I'm interested in consciousness research or I write about consciousness. And if they inquire further, I'll say I'm interested in the the lines between what happens between life and death and what the true nature of consciousness is and what we can learn about living and dying, about the truth of of what makes us conscious beings. And usually people are just baffled by that. And then that's the end of the conversation. They're like, who invited you? (laughs) Yeah. Then the other thing as well is quite often people don't understand the boundaries around around being an intuitive and immediately they'll go can I get a reading tell me something what can you tell me about me and I've spent a lot of my life having to say to people you know if you were a comedian or you were a nurse or you were you know any other kind of occupation I wouldn't be asking you at a party to perform that particular thing on me when you were sort of here enjoying yourself so it is a minefield as a minefield especially because people do have a lot of judgments like if they don't understand this way of seeing and, and being in the world really mm. it's so it's there's so much to unpack just within what you said there but I guess that you know one of the things I do want to bring up is that you know, when you're speaking, what I'm getting from you is that you have a very solid foundation in who you are. And you don't feel, or I'm getting that you don't feel that you need approval from other people. And therefore you don't need to be anything other than who you are and showing up in the way that you choose to. Do you think that takes a certain level of self-awareness or a certain level of courage or a certain level of just self-acceptance to step into your power in that way? Yes, I do. And I think that those have all been very hard won lessons. You know, again, as part of seeing the world through the eyes of someone who tries to be kind and who's just curious about the life experiences of others with no judgment, I probably rushed into various forms of intimacy too quickly with people when I was younger. And so now, you know, part of taking back my power and part of being sort of self-assured and grounded in who I am is that I feel that intimacy has to be earned and telling somebody that you can speak to the dead or that you have anomalous knowledge that you don't understand how you're receiving it because it's being transmitted in ways that science doesn't understand is a very intimate thing to tell somebody you know that that's really sharing an innermost core of who you are and so that sort of intimacy has to be earned and so I contain my energy within myself by not giving those kind of nuggets of intimacy away too quickly with people. So yes, I do think it is a case of putting yourself 
and sort of cherishing and protecting what's true about you before putting other people's comfort level or you know their curiosity or their nosiness first mm -hmm. and I think that that's something that a lot of mediums can work on because mediums go along with sort of service and wanting to be of service and wanting to give 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 back to the world yeah. but quite a lot of mediums are not thinking about how to reserve for themselves or when to reserve for themselves or how to hold back or why to hold back mm -hmm. and that was one of the main reasons that I wrote the medium in the Nolos because I wanted to see mediums starting to sort of claim and own and retain their own power now and save their disclosures about their special abilities and their special way of seeing the world for contexts that are worthy of them. Wow, that's so beautiful. I think you're right. In a way, it's almost that, you know, maybe in your line of work, there's this sort of desire to prove that they're not a fraud, for lack of a better example, because we do live in a world where... Right that sort of industry is seen as being bullshit for whatever reason, for the people who have, you know, who have made money off of it and pride on people who are vulnerable. So, you know, I guess when you're speaking as well, and I think that this was brought up quite a few times in your book was the need for the self-care, the need for the self-love. So is this something that, you know, it sounds to me, or when I was reading from your book, I was under the impression that this was also something that you learned over time to make a priority to realize that it was important yes that's right and for me the relationship between mediumship and love in all its forms including of course self-love which is arguably the most important because when you love yourself you love the spirit that's within you and that's the one doing a lot of the work um is, is very much a sort of symbiotic relationship the two speak to each other so when you love more and you make caring for yourself in really sincere ways and sometimes difficult ways because true self-love isn't easy it's about letting other people down a lot of the time yeah and it's about you know not not breaking apart under pressure and not being what other people expect you to be and paying your damn bills on time and you know having hard conversations with people that have hurt you and you know just it can be hard it can be hard to love yourself yeah. but it is so worth it in your mediumship because when the, the mechanism that I believe is at play when in terms of self-love and mediumship is when we're doing mediumship well, we are tuned into a certain vibration and information from spirit is being carried on those waves, on those vibratory waves to us. If we are out of sync with that vibration, that's when we, you know, get double links and we get some things right, but not all. And we have difficulty holding the link and, you know, we drop out of that zone. And for me, we get into that zone and we stay in it through a practice of, of love that happens in your life. Not when you're sitting doing your mediumship in the moment. That's just, you know, that's just the race that you train for. But a training has to go on in your life and that training should be getting and staying in love as much as possible. And obviously you are always with you. So practicing self-love is a way to do that and a way to ensure that when you come to do your readings, you're literally in the zone, you know, in that zone of communication and that zone of love where the messages can get to you in a rich and full way. You know, I think that, you know, like, because uh, I work with a lot of mentor, I, I mentor clients and I noticed that, you know, self-love is such a theme that comes up on a consistent basis. And yet we live in a world where in a way I feel sometimes it's really difficult to make it a priority or to feel as though we are more important than our children or our dependents or our partner or our parents. And, you know, I guess I just find that you know, as you learn to grow in self-love, you also can realize that there's sometimes this limiting belief or this program that says that you're not worthy and you're not deserving of that. You explored a little bit of this in your book in relation to your, your relationship with your father, which I'm under the impression caused some feelings in you where you felt like maybe you weren't deserving of love or you weren't getting that love from him. Can you sort of talk about that a little bit and how that relationship sort of affected you and even made you a better medium and helped you to grow into this just amazing woman that you are? 
Sure, and thank you for that compliment. So my relationship with my dad, the only way I can describe it is I had the sense within myself that because my dad left when I was five, that I had a big piece of myself missing. I felt that I had not had things reflected back to me that I needed reflected back to me in order to feel happy and healthy and confident and strong and to know how to let boys and men treat me and what I should expect from them and, you know, to help bring some rules and structure and stability to my life. And I felt like I was falling into traps as a young woman, as a teenager and in my 20s. And that those traps and those potholes that I kept falling into were the result of this absence in my life. And so I became quite sad and angry and, and resentful of, of that. And I had a lot of blame for my father, which, you know, arguably is still justified that you live a mile away from your daughter and you never choose to see her again. Uh, you know, arguably there is, that is a bad thing and there is responsibility there, but I realized that I couldn't do anything about it if I was blaming my dad because my dad was who, who he is and I can't change who he is and I can't make him say or do anything. So I realized that I needed a point of view that again allowed me to take my power back, which seems to be sort of the theme of our chat today. Yeah. And so I went through an experience, which is a kind of long story. It's in the book. Hopefully your listeners will read it and find it valuable. But I found a sort of spiritual mentor by accident and he gave me some really, really great advice. And he told me that the way to take my power back was ultimately to give my father the kindness that he had refused or was unable to give me. And in so doing, I sort of flipped the script on the position that I was in. I was no longer the abandoned daughter. I was somebody who could go to him and say, I'm sorry, I've missed your birthday for like the last 12 or 15 years or however long it was and I took my father a gift and it caused a miraculous change in how I saw myself and how I saw the world because when I went to visit my father after all this time and took my birthday gift I just saw this old man child just an old man who was really a child who, who didn't know any better and all of the intentional malice that I had attributed to him which was really the source of the heart you know he's he's holding himself away from me on purpose I'm not worthy of his love you know he doesn't ever think about me or want to connect with me like all of those thoughts I felt were intentional malice and I took one look at him and I just saw like I am expecting the undoable from this man and I'm expecting that within him he is somebody like me and he isn't and that was very, very healing for me. And my mediumship completely transformed because I really believe that we're all spirit. And when, when we forget that, when we are struggling with our mediumship or struggling to get the connection or even struggling to connect to people in life, it's because there have been these separation pains that have piled on top of the truth, which is that we're all connected. And if you can work on yourself and work on your own life to remove those boulders and those rocks that are trapping down and holding down this intrinsic connection that we all share, then you will notice a huge improvement in your mediumship because you then expose the truth, which is that the connections underneath. And when I did that healing process with my father, it lifted just a huge boulder of feeling disconnected and isolated and in pain and troubled. It just lifted it straight off of my connection. And so my mediumship just dramatically improved. And part of it was, I felt I had faced the hardest thing I could ever face because I faced the man that I believed abandoned me and didn't love me. And I faced him from a place of me giving something to him instead of asking for, for something from him. It was the most terrifying thing I've ever done. And facing that terror and lifting that boulder of pain off of the connection that was getting suffocated underneath, I just transformed my mediumship. You know, I just stopped caring what people thought about me and what I had to say. And 
you know, whether the connection was right or wrong. And because I, I was just thinking that the audience were judging me the same as my dad's, you know, that the audience thought I wasn't worthy, that the people I was giving the message to wasn't, you know, thought I wasn't worthy, that I wasn't doing good enough for people's love and attention. And so all of that was infecting my mediumship. So when I healed it with my father, the transformation of my mediumship was immediate. It sounds to me as though in a way you were playing this small person, like the victim role. And when you took your power back, like you've been saying through this conversation that you were able to step into your authentic self. I mean, I think that pain has a place in the world. You know, I, I would say there was some aspect of a victim role that was unintentional or subconscious, but I do also deeply empathize with a little girl whose father went away and never came back, even yeah. though he lived only a mile away. I believe that that pain is justified. Yes. And I don't want people to feel like if they have been genuinely a victim of something like that, that their pain is not justified. It absolutely is. Mm -hmm. But when you get sick of yourself, and you get sick of your own pain and you're like, I just can't live like this or listen to myself think this way anymore. Yeah. Then there is an option, which is in whatever way you're guided to do or feels right to you, you can take your power back through compassion and through ultimately giving to the situation what you feel it withheld from you. I love that. And actually, I think that's like such a strong sort of thing to think about in life. You know, I, I if you want money, do a donation. If you want somebody to make you feel good, give a compliment, you know, it kind of like, you know, give what you want to see. And I suppose that that whole, you know, quotation about be the change you want to see in the world really sort of has a place there. So let's, let's switch gears now just for a little bit. And let's talk about something on the lighter side, which is what do you believe happens when we die? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> oh, God, and it has a really complicated answer. I'm uh, sure. Okay, so, so as I mentioned, I believe that human personalities and also other things in reality, possibly all things in reality, are ultimately information carried on a vibration or a waveform. I think that our bodies are very dense forms of that, and that when we die, the aspect of ourself that is non-massive and non-material. So the feelings of love that you have for your dog, the memory that you have about going to a fairground as a child, uh, you know, all, all of these different things that make you who you are, they get released from the, the sort of anchor, the density anchor they've been living in, which is your body. I think that there are a number of factors that determine whether somebody can be in the zone of communication when they die. And I don't think that that's true of all people. Mm. I think that there are different phases in the spirit world and that it's only some people who want to be or can be in the zone of communication. Here's how I think of it. Here's an analogy, right, to explain yeah. my thinking on this. So I think of consciousness and self as water, as having the properties of water. So imagine that you take water and you pour it into an ice cube tray and you put it in the freezer and you freeze it. So imagine that's you being born. So your personality is getting poured into a fixed body, a fixed shape. And you go into the freezer and you live your life in this body in the freezer. And when you die, you get taken out of the freezer and the ice gets popped out of the container that held it. And when the ice that is your personality that was shaped by the body and the experiences that you lived, when it gets popped out of the freezer, it can hold its shape. So your personality can hold its shape after it comes out of the body. And depending on the specific conditions, which I do not know what they are, but depending on the specific conditions, you may melt or hold your shape for a shorter or longer duration. Mm -hmm. eventually all of this melt back into all that is and our particles of consciousness get reused just as an ice cube will eventually rejoin the atmosphere or rejoin the river or even rejoin the sea we will eventually also rejoin all that is but for a time there seems to be some conditions under which a personality can be popped out of the ice cube tray that was its body and can exist after it's come out of that body 
So that's what I think happens when we die. I think that in some strange way, human consciousness has similar properties to water in that regard. Mm. It's a sort of blank canvas and it gets shaped by the vessel that it's poured into. And then it can hold the properties of that vessel after it's removed from it, but not forever. Wow. And so I guess that's what I think happens when you die. Wow, that's quite amazing. So, I mean, that being said, would you mean also that, you know, when you're doing a reading for somebody that you're not able to necessarily talk to everyone who's passed over because there's a possibility that, you know, to go with the ice cube analogy that they have melted back into the oneness and that they're no longer contactable. Correct. So how do you deal with that when that happens? Yep. Do you try to let people know when they come for a reading to release their expectations at the door or is it okay to have expectations? I have very clear terms and conditions for both my public demonstrations, which I do very often, and also readings, which I do less often now, uh, because like you, I'm teaching a lot of mediums and writing another book, and I was working on an essay, which I'd love to, to tell you about just shortly. Yeah. Um, so very, again, it's boundaries, it's very clear terms and conditions, and I'm not a lawyer, so I can't tell you what to write for all of your listeners out there, but mine specifically say, Mediumship is experimental in nature. As such, no specific guarantees can be made. You are undertaking this reading with the knowledge that no specific guarantees can be made. And usually what I do is I will allow, of an hour long reading, I will allow the client to work with me for 10 minutes. At the end of 10 minutes, I'll say, are you happy to continue? If they say no, I will offer them a refund, which rarely happens. And if they say yes, then that's the sort of verbal contract between us that they're going to take come what may uh, of the rest of the reading. So again, it's about being very clear, very transparent, allowing the person the opportunity to step out if they don't feel the connection is right. And, you know, like you say, no specific, you can't make any specific guarantees. I have had people come to me completely desperate and cannot get one iota of information from the person that they want. I've had people come to me totally unaware of the, per the person in spirit. You know, they'd forgotten all about them and suddenly this person just rushes into their awareness with all of the specific information. And then I've had, you know, happy, happy situations where someone's really desperate and the message is there and the most profound healing takes place that's possible. I'm not in charge of any of those things. So my terms and conditions have to reflect the fact that I am in fact not in charge of any of those things. <laughs> This episode has been brought to you by the Afterlight Institute. Ignite the light, magic, and miracles within. Yeah, I do want to talk to you in a minute about that story that you shared in the book about the woman and you were giving her a reading. It was basically you were wrong the whole time. You were wrong. Uh, but before we get to that, I am wondering, you just sort of touched on it briefly there, but you know, if somebody comes to you and they're really desperate to talk to somebody, do you sort of have a little bit of a... Um, a time period that you feel people need to wait before they do book a reading with you? Like if somebody passes and they want to talk to them the following day, do you, would you do a reading like that? Or do you think that there needs to be a period of, of grief that passes before you're able to, to help somebody? That's a great question. I think that it varies wildly, you know, just like we talked about the personalities of people very wildly, people's ability to handle grief, whether or not it was an expected or a sudden death. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so many factors that come into it. So again, I put it in my terms and conditions and I trust that people will know themselves well enough to know if it's the right experience or not. Mm -hmm. Usually I recommend people wait and go through the grieving process, but that's not always the case. And again, sometimes it's been taken out of my hands. So, you know, I'll go to a spiritualist church or I'll go to a theater to do a demonstration and there will be somebody in the audience whose husband died yesterday and I, I can't control that. And the husband's there and he comes through and he died yesterday. And, you know, I, I don't get to be in charge of that. I try to encourage people. Let me put it this way to you. I think of my terms and conditions as as much of the healing process as the mediumship itself because it's an opportunity to really set the parameters of what you can do and what you can't do, to set people's expectations so that everybody's nice and aligned, mm -hmm. and to give the opportunity to ask the bereaved 
person to reflect and look within and come to their own conclusions if this is really the right opportunity for them. Mm-hmm. I don't give messages to children. You know, you have to be over usually 18 with me. Sometimes I'll speak to a 16-year-old if they're very mature because I was out doing this work at 16, so I can't really be a hypocrite in that regard. (laughs) But usually they have to be an adult. But beyond that, it will just say in my terms and conditions, you need to be responsible for your own mental health here. If you feel that anything that might be said or left unsaid might cause you more harm, please do not come for this sitting. You know, it is up to you to take ownership of your own well-being to make the most of this situation. If now is not the right time, then don't come. So again, it's really important that we treat people with at once sort of kid gloves and explicit carefulness about what to expect and also give them the opportunity to know themselves and to make the choice for themselves. It's a kind of funny tightrope that you have to walk, but the best way to do it, in my opinion, is to write it down and have them read it and sign it. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. So how important is it to do the research when you're choosing a medium? You know, there are so many different mediums out there. I mean, do you suggest that people get a style for Like, would they, when I read your book, I was like, damn, if I was going to get a reading, I would choose this girl because you showed up as the authority and I loved your voice and I really got to know you. Uh, So I guess that would be tick that I did the research. But do you find that sometimes people just Google you and your name comes up and that's why they've chosen you? Or do you think there needs to be sort of a reason for choosing a medium or is it divinely ordered and it's out of our control? (laughs) Yeah, again, I think that's a great question. I I don't know that people have come to me in all sorts of different ways and it's really nice to have somebody come where word of mouth has been at play hairdressers are people who if you do readings for them they gossip to everybody about the reading and you can be sure if you've read for hairdressers that you're going to have 20 people if you've done a good job calling you up asking you for a reading because man they talk they really talk Uh, but sometimes again if somebody's overhyped you and a person comes for a reading and they're, they're kind of desperate or they're feeling really under pressure, there's just no guarantee that that person is going to get the same from the reading. Like, even if you do your best, even if there's good evidence there, people are so di- like distinct and different from each other that there's just no guarantee. So I sometimes also love it when people come to me who don't expect anything or expect me to fail or expect nothing or you know they underestimate me basically which happened a lot when I was young you know they underestimate what can come what can come through what I'm capable of what spirit is capable of more importantly and are gobsmacked and those readings are obviously the funnest and really rewarding and really satisfying because you see the transformation come over somebody when they think oh crap I'm sorry excuse my language I'm genuinely not alone there's like something's watching over me there's something benevolent that loves me and you see the transformation come over somebody when they come to that realization so it's fun to have that gap between somebody being like a bit cynical or underestimating you and then being able to really with the help of spirit come through with the goods So, yeah, I think that it's important for people to choose the medium that resonates well with them. A lot of mediums now obviously have social media. You can watch them live on video. That's what I would recommend. Make sure they're working with compassion and sensitivity and that their mediumship is evidential. Um, You can ask to see examples of their work if you want. You know, I have videos on social media and various other places that people can see if they request it to see what the sort of style of my reading is. And just do your due diligence. I do think that word of mouth is a really good indication that somebody's good. But also just bear in mind that someone else who got a great reading, it might just have been that the stars aligned and it doesn't necessarily guarantee that yours will be the same. So it's a tough thing to choose, but... Just go with your gut, go with your heart, do your research and check what their sort of refund policies are. Just do your due diligence like you would with a, well, I guess with a hairdresser or a a plasterer that comes to, you know, (laughs) plaster your wall for you or or anything at all. Just do your research, do your due diligence and make sure you feel happy with it. So let's talk about that woman who won a reading with you. I think it was like at a raffle or something along those lines. And it turns out that in your reading, you were wrong for pretty much the whole 
the whole time <laughs> or were you so let's talk about that yeah. can you share that story for our listener at home in case they haven't read the book yet sure i'd be happy to so you said it absolutely correctly i donated a reading to a cancer charity in Glasgow. I had worked with this company quite a lot. I had done various live events for them to raise money for a cancer charity. And the girl who ran the charity uh, contacted me and I donated a reading. So the reading, the raffle for the reading took place at this charity ball that they were having. So I had no idea who had won. I didn't know anything about it until the lady called me. So this lady called me, she booked her reading, she came to my home and I looked at her and I think she was like in her late 50s or early 60s. She was very like sort of prim and poised and well put together. And she came in for her sitting and basically I, I got her, like I asked her her name, I asked her if she wanted a glass of water and that was the only yes that I heard for the entire session. Everything that, everything that I said to her was just wrong. She was just saying no to absolutely everything. I had this man with me in spirit and he looked such and such a way and he did this thing and this is what he thought about her. And she was like, no, no, no. She just said no to everything. And I felt horrible, completely demoralized, completely exhausted. And when she left, I literally screamed. I was so frustrated. Mm. And I joked with her that if she had paid for that reading, I would have given her a refund because that was the worst disaster I've experienced probably ever in my mediumship career and so she left and I was just glad that she left I was exhausted and so three months later I got a phone call and I didn't recognize the person's voice and it was this lady and I was so shocked to hear from her and she said I need to come and see you for another reading and I was like oh lord because it had gone so poorly the first time I was just confused by the whole situation so she made an appointment and came to my home and she sat down on the couch and she told me that she was actually adopted and that for 40 years she had been searching for her birth mother with absolutely no leads she had no idea because she was older her own parent like her adopted parents had passed away so she didn't have anybody to ask where she came from she just couldn't find any information at all and she told me that she obviously didn't know her father, her birth father, which is who I had claimed was in spirit. But that I had made her a recording of the reading. I always record it. And although I thought it was just a load of rubbish, I had given her the recording anyway. So she had told me that she had gone home and listened to this recording and that something that I had said on behalf of her father had given her an idea, just a spontaneous struck by lightning idea for where to look for her mother. And she followed it through and she actually found her birth mother through a piece of information that spirit disclosed through me that I was completely unaware of because we never talked about the fact that she was adopted. This is why I was getting everything wrong because she didn't know anything about anybody I was talking about. Yeah. So all of this stuff was wrong. And so she told me that something that I had said she had gone away and thought about it and she'd found her birth mother and they were due to spend their first Christmas together and you know it's one of those readings that I always think about when life is going badly because it was a miracle it was a true miracle yeah. it was a reading that I had no part in except to be the mouthpiece for a higher intelligence and for me that proves the existence of spirit beyond any other reading that I did because I couldn't say anything right except that something right got said through me without me knowing anything about it. And it wasn't anything that the, the sitter knew because she had no idea who her dad was or where her mother was. So I couldn't have psychically got the information from her. It had to be another intelligence beyond the sitter and me that provided that piece of information. So for me, it's one of the most compelling sittings I've ever done. And I was so pleased to just be a part of it. I can feel that emotion even does that still feel like do you do you kind of relive that sometimes and just go wow you know because I could feel your heart in that or at least I'm I'm interpreting that it feels like really yeah just powerful you feel right you feel right and I mentioned earlier that I was writing an essay I've actually been revisiting that story lately because I wrote an essay for a competition um to 
for the best evidence for life after death. So there's a new Center for Consciousness Studies that's opened up in America. And it's called the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies, BICS. And basically they're looking at all of these different approaches to figure out and to truly conclude and answer the question whether consciousness can survive death and whether there's anything beyond this. Mm -hmm. So I wrote an essay for this competition and I revisited that particular story because the dynamics of that story are so particular and removing my influence and removing the influence of the sitter because we didn't know what the heck we were doing yeah it was all wrong it was a horrible mess and yet some other consciousness was able to answer a question that was deeply within her heart that I had no clue was there that she didn't know the answer to some other higher intelligence was able to piece all that together and give her the the answer that changed her life So to me, that's a really compelling angle for proving conclusively that there's some of us in some way, at least some of our consciousness can go on after we die. So it was a very special experience. It felt like a miracle and I have cherished it ever since. How do you deal with uh, a reading in general if someone's getting a no? Do you try to re- reframe it in a different way? Do you let it go to the side and say, figure it out later and keep moving? I mean, anytime I saw John Edwards live and I remember when he was there and he was talking, it was very funny and it was so fabulous. And I do want to talk to you about your public readings, public demonstrations just before we sign off here. But you know, I was under the impression that you do need to keep your vibration high. You do need to keep your spirit up, for lack of a better word, I guess. So when you're getting to know, I would imagine that there would be an element of doubt for a moment that would enter your mind. How do you kind of overcome that in the moment while you're sort of under pressure to read for somebody? That's a great question. So first of all, get a lot of practice in readings where you're not under pressure to read for somebody. That's the first piece of advice I would give, and I can't stress that highly enough. Aim to do 100 readings before you're ever charging anybody or you know, concluding even that you're a medium or anything. You want to really get that evidence under your belt and self-convince that you can, in fact, do this and you can, in fact, do it consistently. And those readings should not feel like pressure. They should feel like training. And when you go through those readings, you should be self-assessing and also getting to know the various different reasons why you're getting a no. Because it's only for each medium to know within his or herself. Like some, for me, some no's feel like, oh, Spirit tried to tell me something. I totally messed it up and misunderstood them. And I know I've done it as soon as I've said it. So as soon as I say the thing, I'm like, no, that wasn't quite right. And then the client's like, no, I don't know what that means. And I go back and I kind of fix it. But sometimes it's more complicated than that. Sometimes the client just draws a blank and can't remember what it is you're talking about. Sometimes it's the case that the, you know, the connection's not there or it's not as strong. And so it's really important that any medium aims to do at least 100 sittings where they can get to know the feeling because it feels different every time as to whether they're flat out wrong or they've messed something up or whether they want to say no yes this is definitely right and the client's just misremembering or whether it's something that hasn't happened yet because those are really important pieces of information which you need to get to know how that feels so you need to tell the client this is something that hasn't happened yet but it's going to be a future piece of evidence for you you need to learn what all of these different ways of getting a no feel like to you so it's really important to start with getting a lot of readings under your belt and really like getting sensitive to your own version of why you get a no and being able to diagnose it because being able to diagnose it tells you what you should do next. And I do write about that in the book, some of the different reasons that I've got to know and how I've coped with them. But most importantly, you need to feel it out for yourself through practice. And what I love about your book is that you do give a lot of hands-on exercises for people to actually do some work within your book. So it's sort of like a mini course, really, while you're taking, while you're reading mm-hmm. the book, or, or in my case, I listened to the book. 
so yeah, if somebody is wanting to get started, that would be a great way definitely to pick up your book and, and to get started in that way. How do you sort of decide which information to take on and to incorporate into your life? Like, do you kind of have a bit of a inner guide? You mentioned being quite sensitive. So do you know truth when you hear or read truth? Or how do you discern that for yourself? Like, this is a really good gem or this is a piece of knowledge that is truthful. Can you make your context a little clearer? What do you mean? Do you mean like an author? Like a like what do I read? Just in general, like what do I, guess I, I like think, how do I... I think in in general, there is a lot of information accessible to people. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of um, good information out there. And and I guess sometimes I'm concerned that when I see all of these people that are showing up to be the expert or that are, you know, have maybe been a medium for five minutes, not 15,000 plus readings, and they're giving advice and they're giving knowledge that sometimes people are taking on this stuff as truth without necessarily running it through a filter. And I guess I was just sort of wondering whether or not you do this naturally or whether it's something that you had to learn over time, how to discern right from wrong for your own self, I suppose. Sure. So I was very fortunate to study epistemology at uni and epistemology is a study of knowledge. What can be known and how are things known and what qualifies as knowledge. And what I discovered in that study is that things that are objectively true or objectively right or wrong are very few and far between. You're really looking at mathematical formulas or self-fulfilling statements like a triangle has three sides. That's true because it simply just refers to itself. So everything else out there, I assume, isn't either true or false and isn't either right or wrong. And I take everything with a pinch of salt. Even myself, I don't know anything. You know, the, the, the world and reality in the universe is much more complicated than we think. What I do tend to think for myself, though, both in terms of information that I'm taking in and also information that I'm giving out as a teacher, is what evidence is there for this? Mm. And is it useful? And for me, usefulness feels like a surge of excitement and a surge of enthusiasm. There's one author that I'm reading right now who I absolutely love and I cannot get enough of his work. His name is Dr. Ian McGilchrist. And he talks about, he's a psychiatrist and a um, neuroscientist, and he talks about the non-physical and non-massive aspects of reality. And he talks about how we have come to perceive a world that we can grasp and use, but it doesn't mean that it's actually the world that exists. It doesn't mean you have an objective view because our minds are selfish. Yes. They want to see a world that they can use and manipulate, but it doesn't mean it's the actual world. And yes. you know this idea that human beings are all, are all just similar enough that we're having like a similar enough experience. But if you were a bat, you would see the world very, very differently. And so that just, for me, is so useful and so filled with what I would call knowledge. And I just feel excited to read it. So look out for what makes you feel positive emotions of enthusiasm and excitement. And also ask yourself, what evidence is there for this? If people are making claims, ask them to back those claims up ask for the work to be shown. And that is also what I do as a teacher as well. You know, I'm sort of on and off of social media because I think that it's just a completely chaotic forum. And it's like the wild west and there's just opinions and people don't know how to think critically and it's very yeah. judgmental. And I just, being sensitive, I find it really quite hard. Me too. But when it comes to actually like my courses and that type of thing, even though I'm talking about something that's very sort of out there and it's hard for some people to get their minds around, which is the possibility of after-death communication, I can show my work. You know, I went to uni and studied consciousness. I can point to the research that indicates that a certain statement that I'm making may very well be the case, such that it's worth pursuing or experimenting with. And in my book, I did have a, a chapter that was all about experiments that you can do because prove it to yourself, you know, prove it to yourself, ask for proof, ask for evidence. If something is true enough and useful enough, there will be evidence for it out there. And it ought to be only evidence that gives you confidence in it, not someone's opinion, 
not what someone says, not what someone told you they read or told you the evidence that they have. Don't get it second and third hand. Get your own evidence, especially for how outrageous the claim is. The evidence should be even better. I hope that helps. <laughs> so good. That is so good. We are at our hour now. I am going to sneak in another question because I, I have to ask this. I talked about it at the beginning of the show and I said I would ask it. So can you talk a little bit about public demonstrations? So speaking of evidence, you're giving evidence in front of a large group of people. How do you sort of prepare or show up for a public demonstration and how does it vary from a personal sitting? Do you ever get super nervous or is it that surge of excitement and you just feel like, here we go? Because I know you like public speaking, so maybe it's a natural fit for you. I think you're right. I think it is a natural fit for me. I absolutely love public demonstrations. I love the energy. I love being around a lot of people. I love going somewhere that you make into a sacred space where you all share this experience together. I love being able to give that evidence from the spirit world. And I definitely feel like one-to-one -one sittings, I obviously did many thousands of them in my time, but it's it's a very um, energy intensive thing to do because you're just talking to one person after one person after one person. Whereas a public demonstration, a mass healing or a mass upliftment can take place because you're using that same hour to talk to a hundred people rather than yeah. one and to give that evidence publicly. Um, so people are saying yes to the evidence, they're taking the evidence, they're getting the messages and other people are, are feeling the same uplift, you know, they're being lifted by that same tide. So for me, that's what I love about it is being able to speak impactfully to a lot of people. and. The way that I prepare for it is in my life. You know, as I alluded to earlier, good mediumship doesn't actually happen in the moment of the reading. Good mediumship happens in your life. And the very last thing I wrote in my book is what you do in life, you become in your mediumship. And I believe that to be very true. And so it's preparing your confidence, preparing your self-love, taking care of business and life, getting some exercise, getting those happy hormones going, like taking care of your life and getting your house in order in a way that is supportive and self-caring and self-loving that essentially makes you calm and confident and free enough that when the moment of the reading comes, you're just clear. You're clear, you're open, you're there to do that. You've not got other things on your mind, other things are taken care of. So that would be my advice is, you know, of course, in a practical sense, practice doing a small number of gallery readings, maybe for five people or 10 people and build up your confidence. But actually confidence comes from taking care of things in a way that honors yourself and your actual life. And then that gets transferred into your mediumship as simply a way of being in the world. So that would be my advice to prepare for it. There's not a lot, there's not a lot that you can actually do in the moment of a reading really except just be there and accept yeah. whatever comes but you can do a lot to prepare before it happens beautiful well thank you so much what an awesome conversation i'm just so thankful um, that you're out there and you're sharing your gift with the world and you're doing so in such a compassionate intelligent and articulate way i can't wait for your second book is there anything that I didn't ask you, Lauren, that you wanted to bring up? You mentioned the essay. We'll put all the links to everything in the show notes for sure. Love to know what's next for you. So please take the time to talk about whatever you feel called to speak on. Thank you. So the Bix essay is announced on the 1st of November as to who won any of the prizes that are available. There's 14 prizes available before the sort of research that's based on those essays starts to take place. So come the 1st of November, we'll know whether my essay won any of the prizes. So at that time, it will be available to read. And the only place that it will be is either on the Bix website or on my substack, which is the art and science of mediumship. And I write about consciousness and mediumship there, and you can subscribe for free. And there's also an option to become a paying subscriber. And if you do, you can attend 
mediumship dems with me for paying subscribers only you can ask me questions in the comments and get some coaching on your mediumship you can shape the conversation and choose certain topics for the essays that are to come so i can answer your questions specifically so it really is worth doing it only nine i think it's nine pounds per month or 90 pounds for the year which is about 120 dollars or 12 dollars um, and so I would love for you to join me on there. And that's where my essay will be published come the 1st of November. So you'll be able to read it. I'm working on a new book that's going to be based on what I wrote for the essay, but I can't talk about it until the judging takes place. So yes, please come and see me on the Art, of Sci the Art and Science of Mediumship, which is simply mediumship.substack.com. Perfect. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. Come back anytime. I love speaking with you. Thank you, Lauren. You too. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for tuning in, listeners. Hi. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave us a review where you listen to your podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you. New episodes every Thursday.